Luke chapter 2, and we're going to try to make it down to verse 20 in this chapter, and it's called Christ Has Come to Save. So you get a little bit of Christmas here in August. So we should have sung some Christmas carols just to prove that it's not just in December that you can sing those. But, um, you know, we're going to be in Luke 2, but I, but I want to, before we get there, I just want to look at a couple of other passages that just kind of, I think, again, just by way of introduction into a study on the life of Jesus. Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. I mean, the Lord was speaking and has been speaking throughout the ages, but when we come to the person of Jesus, it's the final statement. It's, there's no more statements to come. It's Jesus and what he has declared. The revelation was complete in the Son. And so as we come and look at Jesus, we're looking at the full revelation. We are looking at the express image of God. What is God like? Take a look at Jesus. Because he is the second person of the Godhead. And we understand the heart and the nature of the Lord. Turn with me over to John chapter 1. Gospel of John. John chapter 1. Get a little summary of when John had interacted with this amazing man, Jesus of Nazareth. He wrote, a, he wrote a gospel about him. And in chapter 1, we read verse 14. And the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So as we look at Jesus, we are, we're seeing the declaration of the Father. And whatever you come up with, whatever your conclusion is about Jesus... It must be this, he is full of grace and he is full of truth. And if your understanding of Jesus is not a man that is full of grace, not a savior that is full of grace, but is an angry God waiting to snuff out and destroy, then, then you haven't understood the revelation that has come through Jesus Christ. If you think there's truth to be found other places, then, then you haven't discovered Jesus because he is full of truth. He doesn't contain some truth. He is the way, what? The truth and the life. So this is who we're studying. This is who we're talking about. Now, here tonight in chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, 
um, we're only going to see the birth of Jesus. But I think it's just good to keep in mind that this is the one we're talking about. The full expression of the Godhead is going to come in flesh, human flesh, and this little child. How amazing salvation is. Luke is writing to a man by the name of Theophilus. And he is talking about the young moments of Jesus' life here in the beginning of the gospel. And he's going to give him a full statement and a full declaration. Tonight we're going to see, we'll have a few points, but the two main points that I hope we walk away with is that, that we see that Jesus is one who is of humble character and he is one who is the Savior of the world. We begin reading in verses 1 through 7 of how Jesus was born in Bethlehem of humble birth. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, the house of bread. Because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, and there was no room for them in the inn. So here we have this humble birth. The census caused Mary and Joseph to leave their hometown, which was Nazareth, up in the north. You know there had to be a really good reason to want to travel, being big time pregnant, and to walk and, and make their journey down into the south. And what motivated their leaving um, was this census that was being taken. Now, as you read this, I, I, just, I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but I want to bring your attention to this. Um, if, you, if you read any, any commentary, I would think, on this subject, and you begin to read about Quirinius, you're going to find out that they will, and this is the secular sources that, that are available to us, is that when you begin to match up the dates of when uh, it's recorded that Quirinius was governing and when Jesus was born, is that they, they don't line up. And so, um, you know, many people begin, many Bible-believing uh, uh, Christians will begin to say, well, clearly Luke got it wrong, which I'm like, time out. Why, why do we assume that Luke got it wrong? I mean, why, why do we jump to that conclusion? We know that Josephus got a lot of stuff wrong, and yet we have no problem saying that here or there about other conflicting historical, secular historical you know, uh, input, but suddenly when Josephus or another historian says something different, it's like it's the Bible that's wrong. How, why isn't it that they're wrong? Let me tell you a story. Um, we all are familiar with a man in the scriptures by the name of Pontius Pilate. He was the one that made the ruling that Jesus should be crucified. He tried to release him, but he was a man pleaser and he didn't want to deal with the anger of the Jews and so he had Jesus crucified. Well, you know, there was nothing recorded about Pontius Pilate. And they said, you see, 
You can't trust the scriptures. There's no man by the name of Pontius Pilate. Surely if there's a man by the name of Pontius Pilate that had this kind of influence over the land of Israel, we would have, we'd have some recording of it. And they said, and they dismissed the scriptures and said they're not accurate until. At Caesarea, Caesarea Maritima, how many of you remember this little spot here, right? You go there and they have a replica but it's at that spot that as they were digging, they hit a stone and they, op- they pulled up the stone out of the ground, they dusted it off, and they washed off, and there was an inscription of who? Pontius Pilate. Oh. So he, okay, yeah. So n- now we know he exists. Well, why, why did you have to find that to believe the Bible when it's so accurate in, in many other th- uh, ways? Here's another one. No mention, no, no uh, information about King David. Oh, you see, the Jews weren't ever really a real people that dwelt in the land. This was all made up. It's mythology until up in Dan, they find an inscription with the house of David on it. And, and so now, you know, we have archaeology that is there. And we're able to say, oh, look, you know, archaeology tells us what we've always known in the Bible. But to approach this in the other way is, is just, it's backwards. So one insightful man, says, um, his name is Brindle, thinks that Luke was referring to a census that occurred late in Herod the Great's reign that preceded the well-known census of Quirinius in AD 6. In Brindle's view, Quirinius held office on two occasions, first from 6 to 4 BC and then from 6 to 9 BC with the census being associated with each term. Now there's no information that tells us that that happened but I feel quite confident saying that Quirinius called for a census at the time that Jesus was being born and if we haven't found a document or a stone or an inscription oh well we may find it and we may not but why jump to the conclusion that He's the one that's got to be wrong. Why not jump to the conclusion maybe they got the wrong date? Or why not come to the conclusion we just haven't found enough information yet? And so I, I want to bring that up. And I realize for some of you, like, oh, okay, this archaeology, you lost me already. But, but I want you to hear this because if you read something, it can tell you. You'll read it and it'll be a statement, you know, that maybe would really trouble your faith. And say, so, well, Luke got it wrong. Well, if Luke got it wrong here, where else did Luke get it wrong? And so I I just felt like I wanted to take just a couple of minutes to talk about that. But where is this Jesus being born? Well, he's being born in Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? Because this is the city of David. This is where David was from. And Joseph is a descendant of David. He's a descendant of David. And so there are two things that are important that we read here about um, both Bethlehem and the house of David. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 tells us, the prophet Micah tells us that the Messiah, the ruler of Israel, would be born there in Bethlehem. Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. When the Magi came and asked and inquired, or was said they were coming to worship the one that was born the king of the Jews, Herod made an inquiry, where is the Messiah to be born? And the, the religious leader said, that's an easy one. He's going to be born 
in Bethlehem. This was their belief. This is what their expectation. And Jesus indeed was born in Bethlehem. So the, you have the world moving about. You have the governors you know, and the, uh, you know, the Caesars making their decrees, feeling like they're doing whatever they want to do. And yet it is all a part of God fulfilling his plan to move his son from Nazareth to be born down in Bethlehem. An, another important prophecy is in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 17. And, and I'll just read this to you um, so that you can just see the the importance of it being not just only in Bethlehem, but also that he was born to the house of David. So the Lord is speaking to, to David. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So we're talking about, right, we're talking about Solomon who was born and built the house. Verse 14, I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But by my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, King Saul, whom I removed from before you. And here it is. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. This was a prophecy that King David would one day have a descendant that would rule forever. You must be eternal to do that. You must be one that's, that, that is not, you know, is immortal. And that immortal one is Jesus. So he is a descendant of David and he is born in Bethlehem. Prophecy is so important. Especially when we come to the messianic. Uh, Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, messianic prophecies, prophecies that re reference the Messiah. It's so important that we look at these and we have these so that we can know who the Messiah is. There's been a lot of people who claim to be the Messiah, right? Lots of people have come along and, and said, I'm the anointed one. I am the Christ. I'm sure somewhere in the world today, somebody's making that claim. How do you know if they're true? How do you know if the ones that came before Jesus were true? Well, well, there's one way to tell the identity of the Messiah and whether that person making the claims really is true is to look at the prophecies. And, and here are some basic fundamental prophecies that must be true of a person. If anybody says they're the Messiah and they were born in... Lynchburg, Virginia, you know they're a false prophet, besides the fact that he's already come. Because you can't be born in Lynchburg, Virginia, and be the Messiah. You must be born in Bethlehem. And you must be a descendant of David. Now, we could go through a long list of them, but those are just two. Right there. Prophecy... Uh, is to the identity of the Messiah what your passport or, or what your driver's license is. And if you want to travel, you want to get on the plane, um, don't forget that's coming up real soon if we ever fly again. October, you got to have the real ID, so don't get caught at the airport not being able to fly. But um, you, you've got to identify yourself. You have to, you have to say, this is who I am. 
And how do you do that? You do that with your, your passport. You do it with a birth certificate. You do it with a social security uh, you know, card. You do different things. But a passport will let you get out of the country. It'll let you get into countries. It'll let you come back to your country. Who are you? Well, I'm Troy. You have any proof? No, but you can take my word for it. Sorry, you're not doing that. We have to see some proof of identification. And fulfilled prophecy is proof of identification of Jesus' identity as the Messiah. So very important. But what is it that we read here? What is the point that I want us to kind of to glean? It is to note that Jesus was born of a humble birth. Now you're like, oh, come on. He has no choice. Kids don't, little babies don't get to choose where they're born. You're right. No baby has ever chosen where to be born except for one. God in the flesh we know is Jesus, but before he was born, he was the pre-incarnate. He was the one that existed before he took on a human body. And the Godhead declared in Scripture where it is that he would be born. And he said that it would be born in Bethlehem. And in those circumstances where he was born, it was the most humble of them. He was born in a manger. What is a manger? It's a feeding trough. It's where animals eat their food. This is where he was born. He, we, we know that he was born with, you know, into a poor family for several reasons, but one in the text is they, they wrapped him in swaddling cloths. This is what the, the poor would do. They would wrap their babies in these, you know, in these strips of, of, uh, of fabric. And so he's being born. He, can't, he doesn't have a place to be. They can't be in an inn. They're, they're probably um, in, you know, I mean, we don't know for certain that they were in a, um, something would be similar to a barn because at that time people actually had animals inside their house. So we, we can't state emphatically where he was, but you know, the tradition is that he was born in a barn and in this area that might have been looked more like a, a cave than a big, you know, red Virginia barn in the hillside. It was more of a cave where animals would come in and they would be able to, the shepherds would be able to, you know, take care of their animals there. And this is, this is where Jesus was born. Now, if you wanted to impress, and you, Jesus had the opportunity, the God had an opportunity to impress. It's not to be born out in some field where there's some small cave where nobody knows you're there and just tucked away in obscurity. But that's where he was born, was in an environment and a setting like that. He wasn't born in Rome. He wasn't born in Jerusalem. He wasn't born in some place of, of power and notoriety and some beautiful palace with all kinds of attendants surrounding. It was just this very humble setting where he was born. In Philippians chapter 2, turn with me over there. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. And here's the line really right there. This is, this is what you want to see. is that He made himself of no reputation. 
taking the form of a bondservant. Well, how did he do that? He came in the likeness of men. God didn't care about his reputation. He came as a man. <laughs> kind of just puts a little check in there for all of us to remember who we are. We are just flesh. And so he came in the likeness of, of men and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus' entire life, from the birth to his death, was a, was a statement of humility. But it's this humility that makes him so approachable, isn't it? It's why people felt comfortable coming to Jesus. It's, it's why the, the blind man felt free to, to cry out and call out as he was passing by. It's why sinners felt comfortable to go to dinner with him and to talk to him. That's why people that were prostitutes would come and repent before him because this was a humble man and they knew that they could approach him. The arrogance and the pride was all around them. They saw that in every religious leader around them. I don't know about every religious leader, but it was definitely the dominant theme in the religious leaders of their day. But Jesus, he was different, not only in the, his birth, but all the way up to his life. He was humble, and he was approachable. Who do you get nervous in front of? Who, when you got to talk in front of somebody or approach somebody, who do you, who do you get who makes you nervous? Does ordering french fries at McDonald's make you nervous? I mean, I'm not making any slight on anybody, but you, you probably are or not. But if you want to walk in and have a meeting with the governor or you want to have a meeting with, you know, the CEO of your company or you want to have a meeting with the president of the United States, you might feel a little more intimidated there. But, you know, Jesus, although he was God in the flesh, he just communicated to people, come to me. He actually said that, didn't he? Come to me. Approach me. And so Paul, writing there in Philippians chapter 2, tells us of this importance. But if we read in the verses that, that precede, it talks about how we ought to treat one another. We ought to esteem one another. I ought to think of your needs higher than my needs. I ought to consider the things that are going to impact your life. I ought to see what's touching you. And that ought to cause me to want to reach out and help in that situation. And that is related to the incarnation. And that's what we're reading about. He made himself of no reputation and came in the likeness of men. That humility, he looked down upon us in this world and he saw the need for us to be saved, for us to be made whole. And he said, I will do that. I will go. Yeah, but you're, you're the second person of the Godhead. You're going to take on human flesh? As humbling as that is, I will do that, that I might come to man, that I might restore them, and I might meet their need. The incarnation, this little story right here that we're reading in Luke chapter 2, tells us of that humility and reminds us that we need to be serving and looking out for the interest of others. Why is it that we don't look out for the interest of others? Because we're afraid we're not going to get our own. We're afraid that if we look out for the interest of others, we're going to miss out on our cut, on our slice. I mean, if I don't look out for myself, who is going to look out after me? We say these things, and yet we got an answer for that. Your maker. 
Your maker will take care of you. But that's what makes us tight-fisted with one another. That makes us, that's what makes us unwilling to, to pour ourselves out, to put ourselves in harm's way for another person. But that incarnation of Jesus should teach us to do otherwise. And what does Paul say there in verse 5? Let this mind be in you. What Jesus did, when we're talking about serving and looking out for the interests of others, you should do it because it was what Jesus did. And now I don't think any of us would feel comfortable to say, well, that's good for Jesus, but that's not, dang, I mean, I've, I'm an important person. I don't think you probably know the education I have or, or the influence I have in this community or, you know, the job that I hold down or you probably don't understand, you know, who I am. So for me to really begin to look out for the interest of others, I really don't have the time. I, I don't have, I'm just a man, a woman of influence, and so I can't do that. Whoa, whoa, time out. The creator of the universe who holds this whole world together came to look out for us and to minister to us. It is, in varying degrees of pride, why we don't serve one another, why we hold on to our own in, in looking and seeing legitimate need. And yeah, oh yeah, there's people who are going to take advantage. That is for sure. There are people out there that will take advantage. But if we are so afraid of being taken advantage of that we never serve, I don't think we're going to want to stand before the Lord with that. Better to say, man, I got taken advantage of here or there, but I did it to look out for the interest of others. I believe we can have the Spirit give us discernment. So this is so important for us. As we think of the incarnation, this, this big doctrine of God becoming man it has a practical application to your life as you walk out the door tonight. As you drive home, as you go into the house, as you go to work tomorrow, you go to these different places. You know, everybody's racing to get theirs and to take, make sure they get what's, you know, coming to them. But we're called to be different. We're called to be like Jesus and to give ourselves away. Jesus said, if you want to hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you're going to gain it. That, I mean, does, how many of you need to be reminded of that like five times a day? I mean, I, it is so easy to forget that. But this is the truth of Scripture. So yes, we're talking about the incarnation, but the humility of this place where the Lord is being born really does speak to us. In verse 7, we read that there was no room for them in the inn. Now, listen, this poor innkeeper has probably been beat up more than any other person in history, right? You know, the prime exa example of one who is not hospitable. <laughs> I have a feeling if this family knew what was going on, they would have made room for them. I mean, maybe it was a harsh, you know, hostile attitude, but the text doesn't say it. People are traveling from all over Israel for the census, and people are crowding into places. And so Mary and Joseph got there, and there was no room for them in the inn. So there was no, there was no suitable place for Jesus to be born. But, you know, as we go through his life, when Herod found out that the king of the Jews was born, was there a place for Jesus in the life and, and the thinking of King Herod? No. He ordered the decree that all male children under the age of two should be put to death. How about with Caiaphas, 
Was it, did Caiaphas have room for Jesus? How about um, Annas? Did he have room? No, these religious leaders, they had no room for Jesus, the high priests of Israel. How about the, the herdsmen that were taking care of the swine, the, the pigs over in Gergesa? Did they, have, did they have room for Jesus? No, they didn't want him. Depart from here. Leave us. Get away. How about Pilate? How about Agrippa? How about us? Do we have room for Jesus? Now listen, Jesus is a bit of a revolutionary. Jesus likes to literally turn the tables, doesn't he? When he comes in as a carpenter, he begins with demolition. All of our lives are renovation projects. Amen? We all are in need of forgiveness of sins and there are things we've done and things that have been done to us that have, make a, have made us broken, hurt people. And we react to that brokenness. We react to that hurt in different ways. And Jesus comes in and he wants to make us a new creation. He wants to do a renovation project. You know, one of the great things about renovation projects is you can get them real cheap. And, you know, or cheaper. We were able to get the place we're in because it was a building that, you know, had fallen in disrepair. So we were able to get it. But, man, don't, you know, if, if you were to ask me, Troy, we have to build again. Would you rather do a renovation project or just start from scratch? I want to start from scratch. It's so much more complicated. And the Lord could have, I mean, he's God, could have just said, this Version A of creation of mankind is a mess. Wad it up. Throw it over there. I'm going to start over again. But he says, no, I'm going to renovate them. I'm going to come in. And, and what's the point I'm trying to make? The point is, Jesus says that he will come, in, come into our lives and that he will make our hearts his home. But he's going to make it comfortable. He's going to make it acceptable. He's going to make it sanctified. And so when this Jesus comes in, do you have room for him to come in and renovate? I mean, you know, every now and then, you know, this room to my left, your right, um, where one day we think will be the chapel. Every now and then I walk in there just to be reminded. Because it's a, it's a mess over there. And I'm just like, oh yeah, this whole building was like this. I was like, ah. It feels so good. Come back over here. And I see the finished project, pro, you know, the product. And, and, you know, we're not quite finished, but we're, we're real close. We, we can see what it looks like now. But, you know, our lives are like that. And the Lord comes in and he renovates and he tears down and he digs out. Read Jeremiah chapter 1 about the uh, commandment given to Jeremiah to be a prophet that speaks forth the word of the Lord. And he says how it will tear down and it will root out. That's what the word of God does. That's what the, the word of God in the flesh does. He comes into our life and he tears things down. This is why many people cannot and will not ever receive Christ as their Savior. Because they love their darkness. They love their own deeds. They're unwilling to allow Jesus to come in and tear things down. He says, I'll make it my, your, your heart my home. I mean, that's, that's, an amazing, that's an amazing statement. That the God of the universe who holds all things together says, I will make your heart the seed of who you are. I will make that my dwelling place. But he's going to come in as a carpenter. 
and he's going to begin to make it right. And so it begins with, of course, first recognizing that he's the savior of the world and confessing our need for renovation, for him to come in. And as he comes in, he begins to do his work. Sometimes we don't have any idea of how deep that work is going to go. And the more he digs in, the more into our life and he's changing us and transforming us. So we think, you know, at the beginning, it's like, well, yeah, I've got a bad temper. He's got to take care of that bad temper. And before you know it, he's dealing with your thought life and your speech. And he's talking about the way you spend your money. He's talking about the way you spend your time. He's talking about all the, the materialistic things that are in your life. And you're like, I had no idea all of this was going to happen. He goes, well, we're just doing a project here. And he's not going to leave anything undone. But here's the great thing about the master builder, Jesus. If you'll make room for him in your life, he will come in, he will root out, and he will pull down. But he will renovate. He will heal. And he will make whole. And he will build up. But you got to let him. You have to let him. And I think all of us could probably testify that there are those moments where it feels a little bit scary. When the demolition crew comes into our life and begins to say, oh, you've got, this has got to go. Yeah, but if I, if I let go of that, then how am I going to have provision? What about my, where am I going to find companionship? Where am I going to, and we begin to be fearful of what it is that the Lord is going to do. And it's that lack of faith or trust to God that allows him to do that work in our life. Now I realize most of you in here have confessed Christ as your Savior. You've invited him in. He has made your heart his home. But listen, as Paul said to the Philippians, the building project is not over. I have not arrived. He's still working on your heart. And my, the question I want to put out to you, is he still welcome? Is he still welcome to tear down? Is he still welcome to, to rebuild? Are you still willing to repent? And this is where we need to trust the Lord. But you know, I went through that list of people in the first coming of Christ that were not ready for him, and they did not want him. And I pray that you are ready for him. That you can say, Lord Jesus, come in. Take out whatever you want. Remove it all. Again, the, the thing is this. When that happens, it's going to be far better. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be a, a, a creation of the creator in your life. And you just have to welcome him in and you have to believe him and trust him to get the work done. Let's go back into our, our text here, verses 8 through 20. And we see that Christ only came as a humble uh, man being born there in Bethlehem as he was coming in the likeness of men. But he also came as a savior. He came with humility, but he also came as a savior. Let's read these verses. Now, verse 8, there was in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth 
peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see the things that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. What an amazing evening that would have been out in the fields of Bethlehem. Jesus later said in his ministry in Mark chapter 10, verses 43 through 45, that he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And verse 11 that we just read said, the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord, the Savior of the world, is the Messiah. And he has come to save the world. 2,000 years ago, it was in the heart of God to send his son to this world to redeem. And here it is, and it's still in the heart of God. He wants to redeem. If you're hearing my voice right now, and you have not come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, he wants to save you. He wants to redeem you. This isn't just a man. This is the God-man. This is God in human flesh that has come. Why did he have to take on human flesh? Why was there an incarnation? Because sin, our sin, needed to be punished in a body. But it had to be a body that was sinless. And that could only take place through this miraculous virgin birth. And so God, the second person of the Godhead, came down in the form of this babe, Grew up just as we did and eventually was crucified that he might redeem us. He had to be near of kin. In the Old Testament, there's a, the law of the kinsman redeemer. How many of you know about the law of the kinsman redeemer? Okay. The law of the kinsman redeemer was if, if you had land and you had sold it because you were um, indebted and impoverished, then... Um, A family member, if they had the means at a later time, could find out. They could come. They could see, look on the deed and find out what the terms were of what you sold the land for. Um, They would prorate, you know, the years of it, and then they could buy it back. They were allowed to buy it. But it couldn't just be anybody. Well, that's a good piece of land. I want to buy it. And you come to the owner. I want to buy the land. Well, what, what claim do you have it? Well, it's a good piece of land. I want to buy it. I'm not selling it. Well, I'm his cousin. Oh, Okay, you're his cousin. Well, then let's go to the deed. And then you, you could buy it. But you had to be near of kin in order to buy back to redeem. Jesus comes as our redeemer. But he had to be near of kin. He had to take on human flesh. He had to, come as a, he had to be a man to redeem that which we sold ourselves into. And this is the beauty of the story. This is the whole story of Ruth and Boaz, isn't it? Boaz was a kinsman redeemer. And he bought the land. But when he bought the land, what did he get? He got a bride. And what kind of bride did he get, by the way? A Gentile bride. And so Jesus is that one that came and redeems 
us. And yes, he not only took the bride, which is made up of two men into one, both Jew and Gentile in one, in one body. So he comes. Well, safe from what? I, I remember I was probably, I don't know, 17, 18 years old. And we're out in California and out in Huntington Beach Pier. And we went out witnessing. And I went up to this guy. And I said, hey, I want to tell you about the love of Jesus Christ. And um, he goes, and he was wasted. And he said, I don't need that. And um, he had a button on. And I can still remember this. And it had a button on, and it said, drugs saved my life. And I said, you know what? Drugs are ruining your life, but there is a Savior. And he goes, what does he want to save me from? And I said, your sin. The way your life is being destroyed. The way that the pain and the ache of your life. And I began to share with him, and he just looked at me, and he said, it's too late for that. And he just walked away. And that's the way a lot of people feel. That they've made too big of a mess in their life that they might be saved. Our sin is what separates us from God. Sin is not doing what God has told us to do. It's living our life in our own way for our own purposes. That is sin and that sin separates us from God. But God is not content for us to be separated and bear the penalty of our sin in our own bodies. So he sent his son in the flesh to take that penalty in his body to save you and to save me. How great it is to be among the redeemed. And the Lord wants to save you. He wants to save you from the eternal penalty of sin in a place that's called the lake of fire. You know, you say, well, yeah, I know that's good for Christian folks. But that's not good for a person like me. Wait a minute. All of us were people like you before we became Christian folk. All of us were in that place where we were separated from God. Who is it that the Lord decided to announce his birth to? Of course, Mary knew. Joseph knew. But at the time of the birth, who were the people that were told first? Shepherds. Now, we have a romantic idea and view of shepherds. We got this picture of King David out there, a little shepherd boy, David. He's playing on the lyre. He's playing the harp. He's worshiping the Lord. He's writing the, the, you know, the Psalms, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And we, just, we, we have this beautiful picture of that because of David. But that's not, <laughs> that's not the case at this time in history. When the shepherds came into town. You grabbed your pocketbook and your wife. <laughs> because they had a saying, as one author said, what is thine is mine. They were not good people. They were a people that had a bad reputation. And so people wanted to stay far away. Let me just read to you what... Um, I'm going to read you from two different authors. One is from Robert Stein. He says, One should not romanticize the occupation of shepherds. In general, shepherds were dishonest, and he's quoting from the Sanhedrin, or references the Sanhedrin, and unclean according to the standards of the law. They represent the outcasts and sinners from whom Jesus came. Such outcasts were the first recipients of the good news. And then Leon Morris writes, As a class, shepherds had a bad reputation. The nature of their calling kept them from observing the ceremonial law, which, uh, which meant so much to religious people. 
More regrettable was their unfortunate habit of consuming mine with thine, confusing mine with thine as they moved about the country. They were considered the unreliable and were not allowed to give testimony in the law courts. Did you get that? They weren't allowed to give testimony according to the Talmud. And who does Jesus tell? He tells the people who can't testify. But the point really that I want us to see is this. is that Jesus comes for the outcast. He comes for the rejected. He comes for those that are on the fringe and the outskirts of society and says, I will redeem you. And if we understand it properly, we all are those people. We all are on the outskirts. But this, this, this one little point should comfort each and every one of us, reminding us that there is place for me, that the Lord does want me and does want to re renovate my life. No, you've not gone too far. 1 John 1, verses 8 through 10, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. Not most unrighteousness. All kinds of unrighteousness. The worst of the worst of sin. He is prepared and willing to forgive you of because he is hung and he died on the cross. If we say that we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us, it goes on to say. The Lord loves you and he is ready to redeem you. He is your kinsman. He's taken on human flesh and he bore in his body once for all time the sin of the world. And now we can come to him and we can find this cleansing and we can for find this forgiving. How glorious and how wonderful this is. God sending his son to this world was a manifestation of his love. John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. The Lord sent his son. He gave his son that we could be redeemed. There are times in this life where we may think, man, with all this going on, the circumstances I've faced, the, the hardships I've gone through, there's no way that God loves you. Oh, he loves you. This story we're reading right here, the incarnation should ring love in our ears every time we hear of it. Because God loved us and he sent his son to us. He came as a little baby. He humbled himself, took on human flesh. And so as we, we wrap it up here, couple of points for us just to ponder as we, we close in prayer. Number one, have you experienced the ministry of Jesus in your life? Have you experienced the renovation project of him cleansing you of, of sin? Maybe it began, but oh, you, you have just filled up your house with all kinds of stuff. And it, I mean, you need a house cleansing tonight. You need to just get back on track with the Lord. Do it. Get back on track with the Lord. He came. He took on the likeness of men, and we are to have that mindset of serving one another. Have you become 
self-seeking at work, in the neighborhood? Have you become self-seeking in your house? Have you, are you looking out for yourself because nobody else does? Don't do that. That we are told to look out for the interest of others. And Jesus says, you're going to really know the fullness of life when you give yourself away. And he took it even to the point of, of dying. And so these are some good truths for us to remember. Let's pray together. Lord, we come before you and we ask that you would refresh our hearts and, and our mind with the beauty of this very, very familiar story. The birth of your son there in Bethlehem to be the savior of the world. Good news for all people. And Lord, it is good news.